Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am the father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how the heck are you tonight? I'm very good. I've had a lovely weekend in Wales. The sun has been shining. I'm all relaxed and I'm ready to go. How about you? Uh, very much the same, actually, except for the part about being in Wales. But uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. excited. That to, would have uh, been a hell of a journey for you. It really would. Fun though. Yes. So, uh, I'm I'm excited. We got some fun movies to talk about tonight, and uh, some some cool stuff for everybody. And we're going way way back with our top ten. That's right. We're going to go back to the days of uh, I don't know what I don't even know Be- jalopies and before there was sound. That's right. <laughs> That's right. We're going back to the silent era tonight. So it uh, so actually what we're going to do is we're going to present the last the top ten at the end of the episode, in silent film style. So you're just going to hear piano music. Yeah, and then we'll be holding up with slates with our <laughs> right, words right. on. Yeah, we'll have cue cards up, and that's it. It'll yeah. be very interactive. We haven't mm. quite figured it all out yet, but yeah. hopefully it'll work. But the listeners will <laughs> be able to interpret what we're, what we're writing on the slate when they hear the, the, the chalk screeching like Robert Shaw and Jaws. Right, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> okay, so Phil, why don't you tell us what films we're going to be talking about tonight? I think we've got a couple of really good ones. Well... Depends whether you like them all or not. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. We yeah. have an interesting opinion uh, to, to delve into tonight. All right. Well, yeah. tell, tell us what films we're doing first anyway, and then we'll get into opinions after we do our endings. The film we are doing is uh, Christopher Nolan's 2010 film Inception, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hardy, and lots of other cool people. And also 1986 film Three Amigos, directed by John Landis and starring Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, and Martin Short. Very good. So what are we delving into first tonight, Phil? I think we're going to hold off. We're going to make people wait a little bit for Inception, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. We're going to be we're going to be going into the Old West and doing the Three Amigos. Right. So if you're if you're anxiously awaiting Inception, just just imagine that this part of the podcast is a dream that we're implanting in your head. Mm, we're already in your head. We've <laughs> been there right. all week. That's right. This whole thing, you could be just imagining it. Maybe we just incepted this episode into your brain. You're not actually listening to an episode. You're actually <laughs> dreaming right now. That's right. All right. So, Phil, why don't you start us off then? Take us through the events of The Three Amigos. Okay. Well, before I do that, though, I will just give you a little a little inkling of the first time I saw this film. Oh, please do. Yeah. Picture it. 1987. I was on the ferry to Gothenburg. Uh, with my family, we were going over to Sweden to see my uncle. It's one of the worst storms the North Sea has ever seen. Uh, I'm not sure if that's actual, factually correct, but it felt like it. Right. And the captain made the announcement, are there any doctors on board? So, you know, you know, it was rocking. Uh, so, as it was bad weather, the ship was all over the place. My dad, brother and I decided to go to the onboard cinema and watch The Three Amigos. Wow. As you do. Yeah, well, so, as one does in a bad yeah, storm, right? You know, it's the best way to pass the time. I think, actually, it wasn't that what was playing on the Titanic as it was going down? Or am I, do I have my facts mixed up? Yeah, um, yeah, because there was, there was guys playing all, like, you know, violins and stuff as Right, well. but there's also three amigos in the cinema, yeah, I believe. That's yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> that's, fact, that's fact right there. You look well, there it up. There you go. There you have it. <laughs> and there was also Kate Winslet kept wanting me to draw her, but I kept refusing. <laughs> oh, man. Gosh. Terrible. Well, what did I miss out? But anyway, my brother and I loved the film, and my dad absolutely hated it. Oh, really? I, but I anyway, guess I can see that. Yeah, yeah. But, but here we are. Let's go to the recap now. All right, take us through it. We are in 1916, 
El, the villainous El Guapo and his gang are terrorizing the Mexican village of Santa Poco. I just realized, by the way, though, that we're, this takes place in 1916, and we're doing the films of 1917 in our top ten later. So that's like almost serendipitous. We didn't even plan it that way. I know. It is it is quite uh, close, because I'm sure by the end of the film, they're probably in 1917. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Because I like to think this this was on, you know, Christmas 1916. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Mexican village of Santa Paco. Poco? Santa Poco. Yep. Carmen, the daughter of the village leader, she's had enough and she sees a film featuring the three amigos, but she thinks it's a real documentary about these heroes who saved the downtrodden and the poor. So she sends a telegram asking for their help, but due to lack of money, the telegram is edited way down, so it doesn't come across quite right. We're now in Hollywood where the three amigos, who are actually actors, Lucky Day, Dusty Bottoms and Ned Nederlander, the silent film actors, they're currently trying to get more money from the studio, but they end up getting fired. But the telegram turns up and they think it's a film offer in Mexico. So they end up stealing their costumes and they head down to Mexico. While they're trying to figure out where exactly they need to go, they, uh, the bar they're in think they are part of a German team. There's a German bad guy who's hanging around in the, uh, in the area. And so everybody in the, the bar is a bit scared of them. Even more so when they all decide to sing My Little Buttercup to the confused crowd. Eventually, though, Carmen shows up and takes them to the village where they're introduced and everybody thinks they're amazing. So some of El Guapo's men show up. And the three amigos do a load of Hollywood stunts, and the, the bad guys, who are also very confused, ride off, not really understanding what happened. The village celebrate what they think is a great victory. However, El Guapo shows up, and this time the stunts don't work. Lucky ends up getting shot in the arm, and the three amigos run away. So they wander in the desert when Ned persuades the other two to actually be real heroes and save the villagers. So they head off to find El Guapo. <laughs> During some, some bizarre journeys, where they find the singing bush... And Dusty kills the Invisible Swordsman, which I always found was a really bizarre part of the film. Yeah, but uh, one of my favorites, though. Yeah, it's so it's, funny. I, I do like that. It's funny <laughs> to see it, just the sand just plow up where he falls. But they see they see an airplane flying and follow it, and that takes them to El Guapo. And the plane was piloted by the, the dangerous German guy from before. Uh, the three amigos sneak into the hideout, but as they're not actually that good at what they do, Lucky ends up captured and thrown in a dungeon. Dusty does get into Carmen's room, and Ned gets stuck on in a piñata hanging above the, the main courtyard. They almost escape, but the German pilot challenges Ned to a shootout. Ned wins, and this time the three amigos do, do get away from El Guapo and head back to the village. But they know they haven't got much time to save the village, as El Guapo is, is uh, hot on the trail. El Guapo and his men follow, but when they are there, they are attacked by the amigos, who just seem to be running at them from all sides, and there seem to be more than three of them. Turns out the villagers have been busy making uh, three amigos costumes and El Guapo was beaten. The three amigos, true to their characters in the film, refuse payment and ride off into the sunset. And that's where it ends. You can't beat a film that ends with the main characters riding off into the sunset. I think pretty much every film should fit in that way. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess that could work in, yeah. in, in most cases. <laughs> it's some bizarre ones, though. I wouldn't imagine if Alien had ended like that. <laughs> Ripley riding off into the sunset. Right. She's on her power loader. It's like the slowest <laughs> ride off into the sunset ever. It would take like yeah, 18 yeah. minutes for her to you know get out of view. <laughs> All right. Very nicely done, Phil. Very nice. Thank you very much. So what have you got for your day after? All right. So as we know, the Amigos have ridden into the sunset, and they promptly get lost in the desert. <laughs> 
I think I think we're going to have some similarities. <laughs> Could be. They're not all really that that smart, and they're definitely not. You know, they're definitely not people of any intellect whatsoever. Right. They are not <laughs> people of intellect. They're not experienced in the desert, so they get lost. Uh, they have no idea where they are, and so they spend the next couple of days wandering in the desert, and they almost die of thirst before they come across a trail, which turns out to be their trail from when they rode out of Santa Poco in the first place, and it leads them back to Santa Poco. Carmen and the villagers nurse the amigos back to health, and they decide to stay in Santa Poco for a little while because they have nowhere else to go. And that first night that they're back, Carmen stays by Lucky's side all through the night, and she's a little bit smitten with him. Meanwhile, the invisible swordsman's brothers, <laughs> the intangible gunman and the silent swashbuckler, have learned of their brother's death, and they head off en route to Santa Poco to get their revenge. Oh, like that. I didn't think to go with the Invisible Swordsman kind of thing. I know. It's the such side. a small part of the film, too. Yeah. But, like, whenever I think of that movie, all I can think of is them shooting the Invisible Swordsman. Like, that's just one of those scenes that I, you know, yeah. has always stuck with me. So I always like Chevy Chase just reading the thing as well, not actually believing it. And just the, right. the nonchalant way he fires it before he kills the guy. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, that's great stuff. So, anyway, so that's my day after. How about you? So, the three amigos head off. Feeling victorious, they head into the desert and promptly get lost. <laughs> uh, they ride around and realize they've drunk all the water that they had and decide to turn back around and head back to the village. But they head off in the wrong direction for that and end up getting lost again. So they get back to the village in about two days later. There the village throw them a huge party and they eat, drink and make merry. And they stay there for a couple of days and then work out what supplies they need. And this time they ask for a guide before they head off this time for real. I think that might be our most similar uh, yeah. ending yet. I think of all the ones yeah. we've done that have been similar, that that is almost like mirror images of yeah, each other. Yeah, pretty much so. the same. Yeah. yeah, so that's it. So they've got a, they have all the supplies they need, and they've got a guide, and they're going to head off to the nearest town. So that's my day after. What about your immediate aftermath? All right. So the amigos have nowhere really to go. They're kind of pariahs in Hollywood at the moment. So they decide to use the real life location of Santa Poco to film a new movie and to try and reinvigorate their Hollywood careers. Since there are no movie crews in you know remote Mexican villages, they end up calling in a news crew from the nearest Mexican city who agree to come out to film the amigos. The crew encamps in Santa Poco, and the Amigos begin filming their new film called The Sand and the Fury. <laughs> While they're filming, the intangible gunman and the silent swashbuckler show up in town and begin to wreak havoc on the villagers. So the Amigos know what they have to do, and they go into action. They defeat the Invisible Swordsman's brothers in short order and explain to them that the Invisible Swordsman's death was an accident. So the two brothers agree to leave Santa Poco in peace. Meanwhile, the news crew realizes that they have actual footage of this major battle between the three amigos and the Invisible Swordsman's brothers, so they send it back to the station to be reported as news. And that's where we leave it for now. How about you? How's your immediate aftermath go? Very good. Okay. Well, the three amigos, they head to the nearest big town, and while they're journeying through the desert, they see a lone horseman being chased by bandits. They don't want to follow, but they realize it's something they should, should really do, especially as the guide is there going, you know, you need to help. Uh, through a modicum of skill and lots of luck, they end up stopping the bandits and find that the lone horseman is an injured sorrow. Not the original, of course, because that was a long time ago, but one of the one of the many in the long line of Zorros. He explains that the bandits are part of a strange cult that has sprung up in the area. Locals have been disappearing, then turning up drained of blood. Mm -hmm. uh, Zorro was following the lead, and the three amigos join him. Uh, they end up at a bar called the Nipple Spinner. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I know. Yeah. I know which bar that's related to. Yeah, no, and I can't. You, you can't. You won't believe the list. I had the different ways of putting it, and I was going, "What am I doing?" Okay, so they end up going in, getting a drink. Dusty, drinking hand, though, goes to the latrine 
and the other two with Zorro are attacked by vampires. Well, we all saw that one coming. Yeah. Uh, Dust, Dusty, those walk back while he's walking back. He decides to open the shutters of the bar because when he was inside, he found it. You know, it was a bit stuffy and dark. Right. Sud- sunlight floods them, and the vampires are destroyed. Sorrow says they are true heroes and has never seen the like, and he bows down to them. And that's the end of my immediate aftermath. What about uh, your? Yours? You know what's funny is I thought you were going a little bit like I was like, oh, cool mashup with Zorro. that makes sense. And I'm thinking like you know you're going in one direction, and then you went in a completely different direction, bringing in from dusk till dawn. So well, that's that's how from dusk till dawn works. You no, know, it makes sense. I love it. I love it too. As hey, listen, I love Zorro and I love from dusk till dawn. So that's yeah. that's great. Good okay. mashup. So what what have you got? So long term, the amigos return to making their movie, and they spend the next few weeks filming. Pretty soon, though, the news footage of their fight with the Invisible Swordsman's brothers has gone, well, whatever the equivalent of viral was back in 1916. Uh, it's made its way back to Hollywood and has become a newsreel that gets played in cinemas uh, all across the country before the theatrical films. So unbeknownst to them, the Amigos become overnight sensations all over again <laughs> as their real-life heroics endear them to the American people. When the Amigos return to Hollywood with their finished film in hand, they are greeted as heroes, even though they have no idea why. They release The Sand and the Fury, and it becomes the highest-grossing box office film of all time to that point. So the Amigos decide to film their future movies in Santa Poco, and they return there a couple of times a year to film a new movie. And while they're there, a romance blossoms between Lucky and Carmen. Oh, lovely. Flashing forward about 10 years later or so, the advent of sound in film signals the end of the Amigos' film career, but they've been so successful that they really don't mind. Lucky retires down to Santa Poco to live out his days with Carmen. Dusty goes on to become a studio mogul, eventually replacing Louis B. Mayer as the head of MGM, Hmm. while Ned goes on to star in a series of hit radio shows that eventually become hit Western television shows in the 50s in his later years as the advent of television comes on. The three remain good friends for the rest of their years, and every year or so they get together for a treat in Santa Poco, which Lucky has revitalized by pumping money into the economy and turned it into a thriving vacation destination. And they all live happily ever after. Oh, very good. Thank you. So, I yeah, like I decided a uh, nice little happy ending there for the three amigos. I couldn't see uh, – well, I can't say that because I don't know where you're going yet. But <laughs> so I have well, a feeling all, it may done, get – They all did good in the end. Okay, all right. Nice. So that's good news. But let's hear it. Okay, my long term. Through various misadventures and encounters with various heroes and villains, the three amigos have become legends. They still have no money, but wherever they go, they are made welcome. They always have food and places to stay. Word of their exploits reach Hollywood, and a series of films are made about the three amigos, but with different actors playing Lucky, Dusty, and Ned. We have the three amigos and the Lone Ranger, the three amigos versus the Spider Women, three amigos in the hidden city of Leng, and many, many more. Very cool. The the real amigos eventually hear of the films and discuss that they plan on suing the studio, but they decide that first they need to go and see the the films. So they go see the one that's playing in the local cinema, and once it's finished, they realise the new actors are so much better than they could ever be. They decide not to sue, as their lives are richer than they've ever thought possible, and they've saved hundreds of people. They are happy, but are still a little bit stupid. (laughs) I think that's that's pretty perfect, actually. (laughs) I just like the idea of them being film stars and then having somebody else play them in films. Right, right. No, I think yeah. that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, they're still a little bit stupid. Uh, that might be my favorite line of the night, Phil. <laughs> it's a li- still a little <laughs> bit stupid. <laughs> I do. I do always like the film, though. It always. It's. It's always one of the, an enjoyable one. I know it's not the best one. I don't think. I. I think what was it? There was a Chevy Chase as well. He was on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Roger Ebert. Said it was one of the. Let's see, during the interview, Ebert was asked what his least favorite film of the holiday season was, and he replied, Three Amigos. Oh, jeez. 
Um, but Chevy Chase later confided to Ebert backstage that he didn't think it was so hot either. Well, that's a shame. But you know what's funny, though, is it's a very, like, it's one of those movies, it's definitely a cult classic that people really love that film, though. There are people out there who who just adore that movie, you know? Yeah, it yeah. Was, it was not the biggest box office hit, although I seem to remember it being pretty popular when it was out. But, yeah, I think it I think it did all right, but... You know, it certainly seemed like it was a movie that, that I and a lot of my friends had seen, and we all talked about it and joked about it and, you know, quoted it and stuff like that for, for a few years afterwards. So, yeah. But it is, it's a, it's a silly movie, but it's very funny, I think. And I, I, I just think Steve Martin and Chevy Chase and Martin Short all together, yeah. you know, that's such three great comedians in one film. Like, you know, there's just a lot of funny moments in that movie. They do work well together. But I think at the time with John Landis, I don't think he got final cut of the film because he was had all the, the trouble with the Twilight Zone movie. Right. Like, uh, court case. Right, right. With the, uh, you know, the... Yeah, with Vic Morrow's death. That was it, yeah. yeah. Right. So I think that was all going on. So I think the studio got did the cut, got people in there. So I don't think he had the final say in what it was like. Right. I mean, maybe it was supposed to be a different film and maybe it would have been better, but I, I don't know. I have a soft spot for it. It was meant to be, it was meant to be pure drama, apparently. Oh, really? Well, I'm glad. <laughs> no, no. Oh, I was going to say, I don't think that would have worked. <laughs> no, no. But all right. Well, well, that's, um, so that's Three Amigos. Phil, I'm sure you have some interesting trivia tidbits for us. Well, it's a few bits. It was uh, Steven Spielberg was considering directing that, but instead he chose to do E.T. I think probably that seemed the best to work choice. out. Yeah, that seemed yeah, to work out yeah. okay for him. Uh, he would have liked to have, uh, he was going to stick with Steve Martin for Lucky Day, but he wanted Bill Murray for Dusty Bottoms and Robin Williams for Ned. That would which, have also been a funny movie, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And originally the movie was going to have Steve Martin, Dan Aykroyd, and John Belushi. Hmm. Also but, a good combination. Yeah, I know. There's, it's, they all would have worked, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. And uh, what else was there? Uh, Alfonso Aran, who played El Guapo, the bad guy in the film, he mm-hmm. also played a bad guy in The Wild Bunch. Oh, wow. So and he was in lots of other films, westerns, and things. So we put you—you you will have seen him in lots of those kind of stuff. Randy Newman wrote some of the songs for the film, and he was also the voice of the singing bush. Right. Uh, it was also the first film that Steve Martin and Martin Short starred in together. And I think whenever they doing like a uh, Father of the Bride, and were they in that one? Yes. Did yes. You, mm-hmm. Yeah, they in that one. And I think whenever they're together, they always did good stuff. Yeah, for sure. They're they're and, really a, a good team. And, and they all sang in the film. There was they went. Uh, nobody dubbed them. They right. did the singing themselves. Well, that's good. the Three Amigos. All right. Very nicely done. So there you go. Three Amigos, a film that we both enjoy. If you have thoughts on our endings or you want to share your after the endings with us, we will share with you how to do that in just a little bit. Uh, but for now, I think we'll move on to Inception. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there, you do it better than I do. <laughs> uh, so, Inception. Yeah. <laughs> that's how you feel about it huh yeah i don't know what christopher nolan's films i love memento but ever since memento they always my enjoyment of them's gone down hmm. step step down i think that probably boils down to the fact that you're a crazy man yeah yeah because i can't think of another reason why you wouldn't I think, like christopher I think nolan's films i think it's just no I, I, they're extremely well made right and they have amazing actors who do amazing things in them but it's just the coldness that is within them all just seems to get more and more. I, I guess I can see that. I, I, yeah. I to some extent. I mean, I'm not a fan of the last two 
Batman films, especially Dark Knight Rises. I really don't like that movie at all. The Dark Knight yeah, I was... like, but it has some issues. I love Batman Begins. Yeah, I really like Batman Begins as well. But his his non-Batman stuff, I'm pretty much a fan of all of it. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, I guess I can see what you're saying about the coldness, but at the same time, like I think back to Interstellar, and there's the scene where Matthew McConaughey is driving away and his daughter doesn't say goodbye to him, and I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, well, I remember you know sobbing like a baby while I was watching that scene. So, I mean, I guess there's yeah. some coldness, but that was also like, boy, it hit me you know, right yeah, in the gut. I... I think I enjoyed Interstellar more than Inception. That's crazy which, talk. I, I know what people will be saying, it, but the, the thing I my problem with, I'm not sure whether I mentioned it last week, uh, was uh, with Inception. Is the no, fact I think we held off all our opinions for this week. Oh, yeah, so. but that was, they were just, they were just, uh, at the time, before I saw people were going on saying, oh, it's visionary, it's amazing, it's brilliant. And then when I saw the film, it was just a load of things which I'd, I'd read in other books and seen in other films and TV shows. And I know that shouldn't bother me, but it's... It, Maybe I would have enjoyed it if I hadn't read anything about it before seeing it. Right. But doing what I do, I mean, I'm always going to be reading about things before. Well, of course. And that's, I mean, I think any good movie can transcend that, you know? Yeah. It's like having a movie spoiled. I mean, if you watch a movie like, say, The Sixth Sense, where even when you know the twist, it's still still a great movie-watching experience because it's a great movie. That's it. But with Inception, it, it bothered me the whole time I was watching it. I was going, but that was in this, maybe like a Twilight Zone episode, and there was lots of it from, uh, there's a great Michael Marshall, Michael Marshall Smith book called Only Forward, which is all about people going into dreams, but they physically go into it, but it's all the similar things there, which it just, I was going, but no, it's not, it's not this original amazing thing that people are saying. It's Well, I, I, I still think you're crazy, Phil, I gotta say. Well, yes, <laughs> maybe, maybe some... Maybe somebody incepted me. Maybe. Put, put it I, in my uh, head. I personally love Inception. I do think it's brilliant. I mean, may, even if it takes from other sources, it, it pulls them all into one. And visually, it makes it all work so well yeah. on a level that we hadn't really seen in, in films for that kind of movie before. Yeah. But, um, hey, listen, you know, everyone's entitled to, to their opinion. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, shall we uh, jump into this then, Phil? Let's do it. All right, so Inception is a complicated movie. So this synopsis is going to take about 45 minutes. So everyone buckle in. And <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I kept it. I tried to keep it as short as possible. <laughs> and I'm going to do it for 45 minutes, and Phil's going to occasionally just jump in with that noise. I'm just going to do that noise for 45 minutes. <laughs> is that your, your impression of the movie, Phil? It's just yeah. that noise for 45 minutes? <laughs> yeah, for, for two and a half hours, I guess, more likely. Yeah, yeah. All right. So it's directed by Christopher Nolan. It has a heck of a cast, which includes Leonardo DiCaprio, Marianne Cotillard, Ellen Page, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tom Hardy, Michael Caine. Well, of course, Michael Caine's in it. It's a Christopher Nolan film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Killian Murphy and Tom Berenger and a bunch of other people, which I can't even list them all. But Oh, it has also had the late Pete Postlethwaite. It was that's a right. outstanding actor. That's right. He's excellent. Always loved him. All right, here we go. So Dominic Dom Cobb, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his cohort Arthur, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, are extractors, people who perform corporate espionage by extracting information from people's subconsciousness. Dom is approached by Sato, played by the great Ken Watanabe, to do the reverse, to plant an idea in somebody's head, or what he calls an inception. Sato wants to convince a rival businessman's son, Robert, played by Killian Murphy, to dissolve his father's company. In return for doing this, Sato will clear Dom of a false murder charge that keeps him from returning home to his children. So Cobb assembles his heist team. Eames, played by Tom Hardy, a con man and forger. Ariadne, who's an architecture student, played by Ellen Page. And Dom's father-in-law, Professor Stephen Miles, played by Michael Caine. When the rival businessman Robert's dad dies, he flies the body back to Los Angeles and the team goes into action. 
each team member goes to one level in Fisher's subconscious so they can wake up the next team member on the way out. They're warned that due to the complicated nature of the inception process, that if they die in the dream, they won't wake up in the real world like they normally would. They'll be stuck in limbo forever. Then a whole lot of stuff happens. <laughs> Just <laughs> the end. Okay, so here's my actiony day stuff that I yeah right right. I, I can't explain all the action. Go watch the movie. Yeah. Um, but while all this stuff is happening, we learn that Dom and his now dead wife Mal, played by Marion Cotillard, spent the equivalent of fifty years of dream time in limbo, where they constructed a world together even though it was only a few hours in real life. But Mal became so enamored with the limbo world, she refused to return to reality. When Dom used her totem, which is an item that tells dreamers they're in the real world, she wakes up but refuses to believe that she was actually back in reality. So she commits suicide to prove to Dom that they're in a dream, and she frames Dom for her death so that he would have to do the same. Mm. Yes. Okay, deep yes. breath. <laughs> Meanwhile, the inception on Robert ultimately works, and he dissolves his father's company. Sato clears Dom of the murder charges, and he returns home to his children. In the final scene of the film, which most of you are probably familiar with, he uses Mal's totem once again to check if he's in reality. It's a spinning top. He spins the top on a table, but before he can see if it falls or not, he runs outside to join his children. As the top continues to spin, we cut to black. The end. Mm. All right. How'd I do, Phil? You did it very well because it's, yeah, you could have, it could have been a highfalutin, long-winded kind of uh, explanation, <laughs> right. but no, I think I, you did the right thing. I think we covered the yeah. broad strokes. A lot of people have seen this movie. If you haven't, yeah. I know Phil's opinion is different, but I would highly recommend watching it. It is, in my opinion, an excellent film, and certainly what I just said there doesn't really do it justice, at least especially on a visual scale. To be honest, I could probably do with watching it again. I'm really pay attention to it. Right. Because, I mean, I, I watched, I skimmed through it again to do this just to get the the bullet points again just to refresh it in my mind but i should really sit down and just yeah yeah well you never know maybe your opinion will be different this time around yeah I know, and maybe it won't i know maybe it's even worse <laughs> you can no, come back no, and say you hate it yeah no there's lots there's lots of there's lots of good ideas and things but yeah just just frustrating i think right. is the main thing sure sure fair enough all right well yeah. why don't you uh let's see what you come up with then uh why don't you take us through your day after okay then the day after cobb spends some time with his kids but he knows he has to attend to the clinic soon it's nice to be out of only for a day. Ever since the loss of his wife, he has retreated into a fantasy, but he does have moments of clarity. Last night's dream once again featured some of the students from his film theory class he used to teach. It was better than the one where he sank into the cold ocean while the ship sank. Uh -huh. The lovely day is over all too soon, and his carer, pleased with how the day went, tells him it is time to go. Hugging his children, he is determined to make sure his, health his mental health improves so he can spend more time with them. That's my day after. Very nice. I like what you did there, turning it all into a twist, huh? Mm. I like that. I like that. Very nice. Took me a second. Out, yeah, it was all a dream, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> I like that. Very cool. So what about your day after? Okay, so the day after. The top stops spinning. Dom is back in the real world. Yes. He's overjoyed to be reunited with his children. He spends a couple of days just getting reunited with them and, and relaxing. The payment from Sato for doing the Inception has come through, and Dom can basically live out the rest of his life very comfortably. However, a few days after he returns to the real world, Dom suffers a brain aneurysm and it ends up in the hospital. His brain basically ends up in turmoil. The strain of all the dream hopping and the inception has been too much for him, and he ends up going into a coma. And that's the day after. We'll leave it there Ooh, for now. Okay. Why don't you bring us to your immediate aftermath? I will. But you could see why that would, it would put you. You've been doing all that stuff. 
Well, that massive amount. Well, you got to imagine that that would the amount of strain, right? A strain on the human brain. I mean, I don't think they're designed for that much, you know, crazy know. travel. So very good. Look forward to seeing what happens. All right, what do you got? Immediate aftermath. It was during the weekly group therapy sessions that Cobb felt something was wrong. Everyone was there. Sam Lowry, who was obsessed with the works of George Orwell, Phil Connors, who insists that he kept living the same day over and over, <laughs> Douglas Quaid, who has dreams of being a, a secret agent on Mars. Get your ass to Mars. Yeah. Thomas Anderson, who who thinks he is the one who will save all of mankind. Uh-huh. Dorothy Gale, who f- believes she fights magical beings in a faraway land. Mm-hmm. Betty, a failed actress. Alex Gardner, who talks about snake people in his dreams. Buffy Summers, who thinks she's some kind of slayer <laughs> of demons. Patrick Bateman, who insists he's a, a multi-millionaire businessman, but has also killed many people. Mm-hmm. Bobby Ewing, who always stays in the shower. <laughs> and Sam Tyler, an ex-policeman who thinks he lived in 1973. Wow. All overseen by Dr. Frederick Kruger. <laughs> Very nice. Here, it is this Dr. Kruger who is there talking about a new development. It's a new technology developed by Michael Brace and Lillian Reynolds called the Brainstorm. It didn't seem right to Cobb. It was too fantastical, even more than last night's dream, where he'd been left for dead in the wilderness. The next few weeks pass by and Cobb realises some of the familiar faces are no longer in the group. When he asks where they are, the doctor and patients don't know who he's talking about. Mm. He doesn't tell him about the man he keeps seeing when he looks in the mirror. It always looks like he's saying something, but he can't quite make it out. He knows that the fact that the man isn't him should bother him, but he just feels curiosity. He almost recognises the face. And that's the end of my immediate aftermath. Oh, I like that. Very intriguing, Phil. Thank you. Very intriguing. All right. Okay, so. uh, Wow. What about yours? All right. So for my immediate aftermath, while Dom is in the coma, he falls into a deep uh, sleep and he doesn't dream. His brain is so overtaxed from dreaming that now he's in this coma and he's just in like a blank state, which allows his brain to start healing naturally for the first time since he started going into people's subconsciouses. So Professor Miles and Ariadne come to visit him, but they don't think that Dom's body can bring him out of his coma without their help. So Ariadne goes into his subconscious and rescues him. When Dom comes out of the coma, he's got a new idea. He thinks he can rescue Mal's subconscious from deep within his own and implant her into another coma patient's body, thereby resurrecting his wife, or at least her personality. So he begins searching for a person on life support who's in the process of being euthanized, somebody who can become a vessel for Mal without taking someone else's life. He finds a body in the form of a young woman who's been on life support for about two years after a devastating car accident and whose family is ready to say goodbye to her. So Dom begins preparing to dive into his subconscious and implant Mal's replica consciousness into the young woman's body. And that's where we'll leave it. Oh, very good. Thank you. All right, how about your long term? I'm dying to see where this goes. Take us home, Phil. Okay, long term. Years have passed by, patients have come and gone, and the asylum has become more and more decrepit. Cobb can't remember the last time he saw his kids, and he can't remember how long he's been there. Dr. Kruger is more maniacal than he has ever been. The man in the mirror is still there, and Cobb seems to as, thinks he's figured out some of the words. He seems to be saying, I'm sorry, I can't do more, or it could possibly be tech support. Cobb had a good dream last night. He was the millionaire Howard Hughes. Life was good, but it all went weird in the end. And he was locked in a dirty penthouse, afraid of germs while wearing a nappy. (laughs) At today's group therapy, it was just him and Dr. Kruger. The doctor approaches and has a new treatment he wants to try. He seems to have a knife, or maybe more than one in his hands. Cobb feels a sharp icy pain in his chest and everything goes black. He wakes up. He's lying in a low bed in what seems to be a jungle. Soldiers are all around. The medic, the face in the mirror, looks at him. I'm sorry, there's nothing more I can do, he says. Cobb looks over at his friend Jacob. 
He knows neither of them have much time left. He closes his eyes once more. The end. The end. Wow. A little, uh, little Jacob's Ladder, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. All right. Oh, I like that, Phil. Very, Thank uh, you very much. Very intense. I quite liked it, yeah, when it came together. Yeah, yeah, yeah very cool. I like I that. Just, I just started I just thought I'd do what Christopher Nolan did and just take ideas from lots of other films. <laughs> Ouch. Um, <laughs> Ouch. Come on now, Phil. Come no, I'm on. Sorry. Ouch. All no, right. it just seemed like a good way to just get lots of references into different dream things and stuff like that. Okay, then. So what have you got for your long term? All right. So here we go. Professor Miles and Ariadne try to talk Dom out of his idea, but he's become a man obsessed. He's come to realize that he can't travel into people's subconsciouses anymore without killing himself or becoming a vegetable. Despite their protests, Dom goes through with the process, hopping from his consciousness into the comatose young woman's with the replica malconsciousness in tow. He implants her and then kicks back to reality. Dom, Ariadne, and Professor Miles stay by the woman's side for the next couple of days, waiting to see if the implant took. Just as they're about to give up, the young woman starts to stir. Dom is overjoyed and asks if it's really her. But the woman tells him that her name is Carrie, and she has no idea who Dom is or who Mal is. Dom is crushed when he realizes that Mal is now gone forever, because he took Mal out of his subconscious, and now she's effectively been erased. He goes home to his children and resigns himself to a mundane existence, although at least hopefully a happy one with his kids. A few weeks later, Carrie shows up at his doorstep. She's recuperated fully now, and she's come by to thank him from waking her from her coma. They go for a walk, and they really hit it off, even though she's pretty much the opposite of Mal in every way. As they return to Dom's house, Dom makes plans to see her again. He feels a spark of something for this woman for the first time since Mal died. But as she's leaving, she turns to him and says, You know, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about you that seems really familiar to me. Fade to black. Oh, very good. Like a little, little Christopher Nolan-esque ending there for you. Yeah. You can decide on your own whether that particular top stops spinning or not. Ah, very good. <laughs> I like it. So there we go. There you go. That's my, uh, that's my long term. So that's Inception. Good times. I like what you did with yours, uh, even though you made it all a dream. But I guess that's pretty fitting. Mm, I like yours as well. What about some trivia tidbits about Inception? There's got to be a few, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Well, the, uh, as we've already been doing, those, those, the big blurring blah, sound is actually... Uh, it's based on this, a very slowed down version of the. Was it Tom York? Is it a very slowed yeah, down Tom, version of Tom, Tom York? York? Yeah, it's Tom York doing this. Sorry, you know what? No one's going to catch that joke. Phil and I had a yeah. little uh, back and forth a while back, making fun of. I don't. I'm not a Radiohead fan, and I was joking about Tom York's propensity for going me at the end of every song, and it became a big back and forth about all these different sound effects that were actually Tom York, and so. That's where that and one came from. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> it was just a slowed down version yeah. of Time York. <laughs> no, it was, it was actually a slowed down version of the high pitched trumpets at the beginning of Edith Piaf's song, Non Je ne regrette rien, which is really? plays, plays throughout the film, yes. And I didn't the, know that. Also, that plays, the song plays at the end of the credits, signaling that the audience is about to wake up. Oh, I like that. If you take the first letters of the main characters' names, Dom, Robert, Eames, Arthur, Mal, and Sato, they spell dreams. And if you add Peter, Ariadne, and Yusuf, it's dreams pay, hmm. which is what a mind thief would be doing. Right. Uh, oh, Christopher Nolan but, thinks an awful lot about his movies, though. Oh, you yeah, gotta, there's an awful You know lot what I mean? On. Like, that's – he always puts stuff like that in there, layers stuff in like that, and it's it's fascinating to me because you just – you know, only people who catch these things are people who have a lot of free time on their hands, I think. Totally. But uh, also, though, because people in Japan or the Japan television broadcasters don't think the viewers – 
could follow what was going on because they put text in the upper left corner whenever it's shown on TV to show what level of dream we're in. Really? Yeah, which is a bit weird. That is weird. Oh, yeah. Also, with the whole Edith Piaf, uh, non regret, I'm pronouncing that dreadfully, but Edith Piaf song, the movie's runtime is two hours and 28 minutes, and Edith Piaf song on its first recorded edition was two minutes and 28 seconds. See, like, how do you plan that? Or is that just a happy coincidence, you know? Well, you just must be going, you know, he's going, I've got to cut it down, and they're going, no, why? You've got to do this. Right. Crazy. Right. Uh, also, the snow-based third-level dream was inspired by Christopher Nolan's favorite James Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, very cool. Kate Winslet was approached for the role of Mal, mm. but, but she turned it down because she couldn't see herself in the character. And it took 10 years for Christopher Nolan to write the screenplay for this movie. I can sort of see that because there was so many, so many things to keep track of. Yeah, it couldn't have been an easy movie to write. Yeah, lots of characters, but also all the different levels and things. Right. And Michael Caine only got three minutes of screen time. Really? That little? Mm. They got a lot more in my after the ending, so I guess Michael yeah. Caine owes me some of the royalty checks. So. Yeah, there you go. Come on, Michael, uh, pay up. You can oh, afford and, it. Oh, and also Brad Pitt and Will Smith were set, apparently both offered the role of Cobb, but both actors passed on the role. But I think I think uh, Christopher Nolan always wanted DiCaprio. Well, I, I understand that he'd been wanting to work with him for a while, mm. but they couldn't connect on the right project. So yeah. it was clearly it was a good thing that they found this to work together on because it did quite well for both of them. Oh, definitely, yeah. Oh, and just uh, also... The role of Ariadne was offered to Evan Rachel Wood, who was the first choice to play it. Uh, she couldn't do it, but it was, before it went to Ellen Page, it was Nolan considered casting Emily Blunt, Rachel McAdams, Emma Roberts, Taylor Swift, and Carrie Mulligan. Oh, Carrie Mulligan, oh, yeah. There you go. Very cool. So there you go. That is Inception and our endings for it. As always, you know the drill. If you have thoughts on our endings or your own, feel free to share them with us. And if you don't uh, share your thoughts with us, if you don't, if you don't drop us a line, then Phil will just keep making his Inception noise uh, ad infinitum. <laughs> you like doing that way too much. I, I do. <laughs> oh, one interesting thing. Where did you see that? Uh, Miles Totem, the spinning top, uh, could be also could be a reference to the Clifford D. Simak story, Ring Around the Sun, where the spinning top is used as a way to skip from one parallel air to another hmm. by way of helping characters to concentrate. Interesting. Then it might not. But Mal's actual totem, wasn't it? His wedding ring. Dom's we- totem was his wedding ring, yes. Yeah, yeah. That is a mistake a lot of people make. And what, from what I understand, all the scenes where he's in a dream, he's not wearing his wedding ring. But in the real world, he is. Or maybe it's vice versa. But either way. So at the mm. end of the movie, whichever one is supposed to be the real world is what it is. So a lot of people take that as the clue that he is really back in the real world. Yeah. Personally, for me, I'm just a sucker for happy endings. So I, I, I chose to believe that you know, the top would fall over and he would be in the real world. But, it, you know, what I like about that film is everyone can choose to believe what they want to believe about the end of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I took it from that. I, the end of the film, I, I thought he'd, he'd come back to the real world and he was finally reunited. Right, I think so. But, yeah. you know, everyone can have their own opinion. Yeah. Even if ours are the right ones. Well, clearly yeah. yours isn't because you don't like this film that much, so forget but your some... opinion. <laughs> I'm the only one who's right all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so moving on, it is time for our new mini feature of the week. As you know, we always like to bring you something fun and interesting between our After the Endings and our Top Ten. And this week's new mini feature is called We Don't Have an Exciting Name for This Feature because it doesn't really need a catchy name. (laughs) This week, we are lucky enough to have an exclusive interview with Graham McTavish, who is an actor you may not know by name, but I guarantee you, you know his face. And if you want to know... Go look him up right now. As soon as you see him, you'll know him. But a few things of note he's done in recent years. He was in all three Hobbit movies as one of the dwarves. I believe it was pronounced Dwalin or Dwalin. Was that the one where they had the the axe in his head? I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So he played that. He was also in Creed, which was a big hit last year, of course. He played the manager of the other boxer that Creed ended up fighting in the big ring, kind of the unscrupulous manager. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has been in the TV series, the hit TV series, Outlander. He starred as Dougal McKenzie in the first season, which was one of the biggest characters in the show. I've still not watched that. Is it good? Oh, it's fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a great oh, I need show. I to get that watched. So, yes, so he's been in that. And he's also currently in The Finest Hours, which is coming out on video or probably will have just come out by the time you hear this. He plays one of the main characters in that film. And that's the film that I actually got a chance to speak with him about. But in the interview, not only do we talk about The Finest Hours, we also talk about all kinds of really interesting things about filming the movies, about The Hobbit films, about some of his success over the past couple of years, because he's been acting for 30 years, but he's just lately sort of been in everything. Um, and we also talked about him being a really nice guy. So uh, it's a really great interview that I was I was extremely pleased to be able to, to conduct, and, and Graham couldn't have been nicer. So I hope you guys will enjoy listening to it. Fantastic. Let's have a listen. Hi, Mike. Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. I'm excited to talk to you. Oh, that's nice. Oh, very good. So, um, well, let's start with the finest hours. Uh, and yep. I'll start with my... my my most mundane question first, and I'll get to more interesting ones after that. So, okay. uh, for for those people who haven't seen the film yet, can you just tell us a little bit about your character and your and your role in the film? Yeah, I play um, Frank Fateau, who's the um, who I guess well he works in the engine room. He's the sort of uh, guy down below, along with Casey Affleck's character and Josh Stewart, we're the sort of engine room guys, and he's um, he's I guess you know a, a proper salty sea dog you know he's been around he's been actually in two previous um shipwrecks that he has also you know he survived so uh he's he's been around the block that's for sure and the uh the guy knows what's coming when um when things start to go wrong on this ship and really along with casey and josh we're the ones that are uh are on the same side trying to get the the ship uh, into a place of safety so that we can be rescued. And uh, then all sorts of, you know, nightmarish scenarios ensue in, in with um, me breaking my arm and uh, nearly drowning and, you know, the usual kind of thing that happens when you're being shipwrecked. You know, I um, I enjoyed the film very much. And, um, oh, but good. As I'm I was glad. watching it. Yeah. But as I was watching it, though, I thought this looks like it must have been a miserable filming experience because you guys look <laughs> cold and wet and you're in this, you know, nasty yeah. ship under, you know, belly and stuff. What what was the experience, the filming experience like for this movie? Well, I have to be on. I mean, in terms of discomfort, uh, you know, I, having worked on uh, The Hobbit, um, you know, right. that, that sets a high bar for discomfort. So right. um, what? Everything, everything after that seems relatively benign. You know, at least I had my own face in the finest hours, and that was <laughs> yep. a big plus. Uh, but in terms of the wet and the cold, yeah, we did. We got very cold. I know that, you know, Josh uh, Stewart particularly, because um, he was only wearing a T-shirt uh, for some mm. of the stuff that we were doing on deck, and uh, he got properly cold. I mean, the poor guy. Uh, was was he was a real trooper, but you know we we would stand there and um, Vince, the first assistant director, would shout out, you know, turn on the elements, and when when he said that, we knew what was coming, and so the wind machine would start up, the rain machine, then the wave machines, all this stuff would be going, the gimbal, and um, 
And, but the good thing about it was that it did place you in an environment, not obviously as harsh as the reality of what these guys went through, but it placed you in an environment where you were, you were having to respond to real things. And I think sure. that was, it was a great choice for the people who made the film not to rely uh, purely on CG to create that physical environment for us to work with, that we were actually being battered around and thrown around and all the rest of it. Um, and you kind of, I wouldn't say acting goes out of the window, but you, you are having to <laughs> genuinely respond to the situation around you, uh, and which right. makes for, I think, really interesting, spontaneous reactions. Uh, when you're sure. trying to help people up off the ground who've been knocked down or whatever, it was it was I I listen I really enjoyed it because um, I love doing that kind of stuff. It's uh, you know the kind of physical world that you can be dropped into and and um, and experience for a few months and and then do something different. So it's it's for me it's part of the joy of the job really. Right now, was this a story that you were familiar with before you started filming? No, no, it wasn't. Um, no, I'm ashamed to say I did not know about the story. And obviously I, um, I, I read about it once um, I was doing the job. And uh, it is the most extraordinary tale of survival. And, you know, those guys who brought the 36500 out in those conditions, in, in what was really a suicide mission um, mm -hmm. to go and rescue these people on the boat and then to arrive at the ship and see the situation that these guys were in, um, where they had quite literally minutes before the ship started to sink and then evacuate them all and get them to safety, uh, apart from, obviously, sadly, the tiny character. But uh, that is it's an extraordinary achievement. Uh, uh, and when you look at the people, the, the real guys who did it, like kids, it's like 21, right. 22, um, you know, tough-looking kids. But nevertheless, these are not these are not sort of you know, middle-aged men doing it. They're, 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 uh, they're just out of high school, really. Right. So it's, um, yeah, an incredible achievement, I thought. For sure. Now, when you're playing, a, you know, a real person as opposed to a fictional character, do you prepare differently mm. as an actor? Um, I think, uh, well, broadly speaking, no, because you are, you are trying to honor the script and tell the story in hopefully, you know, an, an entertaining and exciting way and in, in, in a movie like this, which is, you know, it's a roller coaster ride and you want to take the audience on that journey with you. But at the back of your mind, you're also aware that, that you also have a, a, a duty and responsibility towards the, the person who actually went through it. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we were visited by one of the guys, uh, one of the 36500 guys, who I think is the only living uh, survivor now, and, you know, you meet him, and goodness me, the guy was so um, unassuming and modest and uh, exactly what you would expect from somebody who actually risked his life on a daily basis. <laughs> and uh, right. when you met, when you, you know, as an actor, when you meet people who really have done these things, there's a part of you that feels, you know, a little bit of a fraud, to be honest, because you're, <laughs> you know, there you are up there having, you know, coffees brought to you and people bringing up towels to keep you dry during setups and all the rest of it. And there was none of that for these guys. It was, right. it was, um, you know, minute by minute, uh, fighting for your life. And, uh, 
no, I have. I, I, you know, I developed massive respect for them um, in the making of in the making of the film. That's for sure. And I think um, all the other guys did too. Sure, sure. Now, you know, over the past year or so, you've had what I like to call a, a Benedict Cumberbatch year, whereas like he had this year where like, nobody knew who he was, and then like a year later, he was like a household name. And it, it seems like right. every time I've turned around in the past few months. There's Graham McCavish, you know, there was, there was obviously the Hobbit movies, but you were, like you said, you were kind of disguised there, but then there was Outlander and Creed and The Finest Hours, and every time I turn around, there you are. So, I know you've been acting for a long time, but is this just sort of the culmination of years of hard work, or, or, you know, what's Um, sort of the secret to your, you know, your quote, overnight success? (laughs) You know, I I mean, it's, yeah, it's a funny thing. I I mean, certainly, uh, it's been, it's been great recently, and, you know, and uh, there's some, um, exciting news coming up that'll be announced in the next week or so um, oh, concerning a job that I'm that I'm gonna that I have been working on but they've been kind of not wanting to announce it until um they were ready. Uh, so that mm-hmm. that's that's great and it's it's certainly um involved in a project that I'm really excited about doing. But but the other ones uh you know you it it kinda makes me laugh a little a little bit because I've been doing this for thirty years and um, you know, I've done theatre, I've done, you know, everything you can possibly imagine. Uh, and uh, now, you know, yes, people recognize me more or are a little more familiar with who I am and my work and all the rest of it. But the process um, of doing those jobs, all of those jobs, has has been the same. You know, you you come to the job, whether it's... Um, in a, in a small theatre in Scotland where I, where I started out, or if you're working on something like The Hobbit, at the end of the day, you're, you're in, a, in a space with a few other people trying to tell a truthful story um, with the help of a director and, you know, a good script and all the rest of it. And so the actual process is always the same. You might be surrounded by all this other stuff, but it's, it's good to, I think, have had experience where you just you, you're familiar with that world. What I'm not familiar with is the world of, you know, people people recognizing me and all that all that sort of thing. But that's right. kind of I, I don't really I don't really think too much about that to be honest. It's uh, sure. I mean it's nice if if people are kind about what you've done. But um, you know I just I just keep um, I just keep doing what I enjoy and hopefully that coincides with people wanting me to do those things. Yeah, right. that's, that's how right. I see it. There you go. Now, you, know, you seem like a genuinely pleasant uh, gentleman, but uh, you often get cast as you know, rather rough and tumble, shall we say, or slightly more uh, acerbic characters. Why, yeah. why, yeah. why do you think that is? Ah, <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, well, there's lots of reasons, really. I think, um, you know, I, I, I look the way I do, and there's, you know, your your life history is written in your face, and all that, all those sort of things, and you just end up with a particular look which resonates for, for some people in particular types of roles and 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 of course you know the more you do one kind of a role the more people start to associate you with those things and and that's a right. that's a consequence of this business um i don't know i mean i i've uh i enjoy doing i mean listen i enjoy playing characters like Dougal mckenzie and outlander because they're kind of complicated and difficult and there, um, you know, one minute you like the guy, one minute you don't. Those sort of people, very, very villainous t- types that I've played. You know, listen, they I mean, every actor will tell you they're just great fun to do. They really are. Right. And uh, you, you get to. I mean, I've always done them. I've, I've done comedy mainly on stage, 
But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with, with that, that kind of gritty drama, um, it's something that I've always enjoyed. I've, I was always going to be, you know, that kind of guy rather than the Romeo character. So right, right. It's, uh, it's just how things played out, really. Yeah, well, it seems to be serving you well. <laughs> well, hopefully. Um, yeah. Speaking of Outlander, real quickly, my wife and I are huge fans of the show, so obviously oh, that, that was great. a big success for you. And now you're not in season two. Do you know, are we going to see you again, or are you not allowed to oh, say? Yeah. Is that... yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm in season two. Oh, yes. Oh, great. You will most certainly be seeing me, yeah. Um, and uh, pretty pretty soon, actually, I think. So, uh, oh, cool. yeah, yeah, we've, we've really enjoyed um, doing it. It's been yeah, oh, yeah been great, great actually. Oh, thank Very you. Cool. What um? So what else do you have coming up that we can look for you in then besides season two of Outlander? Well, I mean, there's this project um, that unfortunately I can't talk about. Right. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's mainly um, what's going to be coming up uh, along with season two of Outlander, and I have to do a movie, um, an independent movie in New Zealand actually, uh, called mm-hmm. The Stolen, which um, is uh, set in the 19th century there. Uh, during the gold rush involving the abduction of a child and uh, myself and some others uh, helped the mother to um, to find find the child uh, in a sort of you know road trip kind of adventure in the 19th century in New Zealand and uh, it's a great great script so I'm looking forward to doing that I start shooting that in about two weeks time so yeah very cool that's what's coming up Excellent. Yeah. Well, we'll be on the look for it, and, I, and I'm, I'll be looking forward to seeing some nice guy Graham McTavish roles coming up hopefully soon, too. <laughs> yeah, no, I hope so. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> but I'll tell people. I'll say, listen, Graham's really a nice guy. Don't fall for it. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, I appreciate that, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I'm really enjoying watching okay. you all of your projects, so continue success to you. All right. Thanks very much again. That was excellent. What a lovely bloke. Uh, and I think now I will actually watch The Finest Hours because I wasn't really that bothered about it. But after listening to that, I'll give it a go. Yeah, I'll say it's it's worth watching. I, I'll, be, I'll be honest, it wasn't as exciting of a movie as I wanted it to be. Yeah. I did enjoy it. It's a relatively engaging thriller. There's just something about it to me that it could have been a little more like I didn't feel like my pulse rate ever got going that high. Yeah. Um, but it's still a decent film. There's some exciting sequences, some great visuals when the ship is cut in half. It's got a good cast as well. Terrific cast. A lot yeah. of a lot of people in it that you'll recognize or maybe you won't. Ben Foster's in it, who I love. I didn't even know he was in it until the end credits, and he's one of the major characters. Like I didn't even recognize him. <laughs> uh, Casey Affleck, of course, is in it. Chris Pine is great in it. Just really, you know, so it's worth watching. It's just not the blockbuster experience that I was hoping for but but it is a good movie definitely check it out if you're interested in that kind of stuff and and just keep an eye out for Graham McTavish because he's he's clearly got some big stuff on the horizon so brilliant All right, so time to move on then to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes. So, Phil, what year are we going to be discussing this episode? We are discussing the year of 1917, which was a great year for cinema, but I haven't really seen many of the films from that year. Yeah, great year for cinema, not a great year for us, it turns out. So here's what we decided to do. So it turns out uh, neither Phil nor I have seen a lot of movies from 1917. I think that's, uh, you know, for fairly obvious reasons. They're not exactly the type of things that you find on Netflix very often. I hope you guys won't hold that against us. But what we decided to do this episode is since we haven't seen enough films to do a top 10 list, we decided to make this the top 10 films that we want to see from 1917. Because there are some really notable efforts from that year, some really important stuff, some interesting stuff. 
So we've kind of each compiled our list of top 10 films that we want to track down and watch instead of the films that we have seen. So we think that'll be just as interesting. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it as well. So Phil, why don't you climb into that famous time machine of yours? Take us back to the era of 1917 and the silent films and tell us what was happening in the world. Well, okay, then the Wayback Machine has taken us to 1917, where David Lloyd George was the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Uh, the President was Woodrow Wilson, who began his second term during that year, and World War One was going on. So it's... Uh, not the best of years, but there were some things happening. Uh, J.R.L. Tolkien began writing the Book of Lost Tales, which was and had become part of the Silmarillion. Uh, Matahari was arrested for spying and then executed. The Jones Act, which granted Puerto Ricans U.S. citizenship. Uh, the world's first feature-length animated film was made in Argentina. Emperor Nicholas II of Russia abdicates, and many people say that was the end of the Russian Empire. Uh, the U.S. declared war on Germany, and the first Pulitzer Prizes were awarded. Charlie Chaplin became the first actor with a million dollar deal and the first Cottingley Fairies photos were taken and uh, the hoax carried on until 1981 when it was admitted to have all been fabricated. Uh, Arabian troops led by T.E. Lawrence captured Akbar from the Ottoman Empire and King George V stated all male descendants of the British royal family from henceforth will have the surname Windsor. Uh, for any hockey fans out there, the National Hockey League was formed in Montreal. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. Also, we had some famous births. We had Jane Jane Wyman, Ernest Borgnine, Zazar Gabor, Anthony Burgess, Viva Lynn, Robert Block, Ella Fitzgerald, JFK, Dean Martin, Phyllis Diller, Robert Mitchum, and I think uh, Ray, uh, Raymond Burr and Herbert Lom. And that was 1917. All righty. Very nicely done. All right, so Phil, why don't you start things off this week then and give us your number 10 for 1917. Okay, my number 10 for 1917 was The Man Without a Country, which was an adaption of Edward Everett Hale's short story, The Man Without a Country. It was directed by Ernest C. Ward, and it just seemed extremely interesting. It's about it's all about an orphan kid of a veteran who goes to live in the country with his uncle, uh, and first things happen to him, and he ends up reading a copy of the book, The Man Without a Country, where he is visited by different spirits who tell him about the previous life he was in and take him back to historic times and show him different scenes from the book. It just sounds it sounds a bit like a Christmas Carol kind of thing where he's shown different aspects of his life or previous lives of other people uh, to help him appreciate what he's got. Just one of those ones which knew nothing about it until doing this list, and I just like the sound of it. Yeah, sounds interesting for sure. Mm. Well, not one on my list actually, but that's okay. I'm sure we'll have some overlap as we go. My number 10 is The Little Princess starring Mary Pickford. Uh, this is the first of a couple of appearances she's going to make on the list because apparently she was in every movie that came out in 1917. Yeah, yeah she was. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically it's it's kind of a Christmas movie sort of about this downtrodden girl and and how she kind of finds a family. And, um, you know, I initially, initially it made my list because I, I've never actually seen Mary Pickford in anything, and she was one of the biggest movie stars of her time, as far as the silent era. Your, descri your description of the film, it seems to be the description of lots of her films. Well, right, yeah. She yeah. definitely kind of had a niche, you know, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I've never seen a Mary Pickford film, and she was, as far as silent era goes, she was really like a huge, huge star. Uh, so this one made my list, because I also like Christmas movies. I figured that should probably have uh, some interest to be held there. So there you yeah, go. So that's yeah. my number 10. You, you do forget that these were when we when we say they were big stars back then, they were absolutely huge, weren't they? They were just 
big names that everybody saw and they would just oh yeah i mean it was she was you know household names yeah. across the country and like i said she was in several films that year and yeah. everybody in the country knew who she was i mean it was it's, she was as ubiquitous as somebody today is you know like like brad pitt you know or something like that i mean it's a name yeah. that you just mentioned it and everyone knows it yeah i mean m many listeners probably have heard of her but just right like like you, you and me, we haven't actually seen one of her films. I've seen bits bits and pieces of it mm -hmm. on YouTube. But, yep, yep, same thing. Yeah. I've seen pictures and stuff, but never yeah. actually watched a film. So, so that's number ten. She'll be her name will be popping up again as we go. So okay, so my number nine is the picture of Dorian Gray. This is a German version, directed by Richard Oswald, and it's purely because it's a picture of Dorian Gray. I love the story by Oscar Wilde, and I've I've, I've liked pretty much most of the other film versions have been, and also the character when he turns up on TV. Right. Uh, mo most recently in. Penny Dreadful. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just I'd want to see this to see how they uh, they dealt with the story. There'd be some interesting visuals if it's the doing it all silent. So it'd be a good one to see. Very cool. Good choice. Yeah. All right. Well, my number nine is called Straight Shooting. It's one of the earliest films of the great John Ford, who would go on to be one of the most famous directors in Hollywood, made a million pictures with John Wayne, including The Searchers and Stagecoach, two of my favorite films. And uh, it also stars Harry Carey Sr. And I don't know much about the story. It's it's one of those films that's lost. As we'll find out a lot of these are. And um, or actually, I shouldn't say that because I don't know for sure if that one is or not. But I don't know a whole lot about the story because I know it has to do with some kind of farming and some trouble and stuff like that. But uh, it's John Ford, and I really love his films, and I'm curious to see what some of his earliest directorial efforts were like. Definitely, yeah. My number eight, it's one of them. Well, there was lots of short films then with lots of the silent movie stars, and I think I have seen this one. It's the uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Immigrant. Right, that is one of his more, more well-known short films. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure I've, I know I've seen it. Right. This one's Charlie Chaplin one. And it deals with uh, Charlie Chaplin's Trump character as an immigrant coming to the United States and he's accused of theft. And he, as usual, he falls in love with a beautiful young woman, uh, which was Edna Perviant, I think was the the actress. And it was one of the ones, well, like most of Charlie Chaplin's films, later ones, was written and directed by Chaplin. And we all know Chaplin, very funny, but also very touching and You've got to have a Charlie Chaplin film on your list. <laughs> well, you know, you do indeed, and I'm a huge Chaplin fan, and actually he didn't make my list only for the reason that I tried to avoid short films for my list. I did put a couple of them on there, yeah. but the ones that I picked had very specific reasons for it. So this would have been on my list for sure because I, I love Chaplin, but I, I was trying to go more with full-length films. Obviously, there's, there's no rules for the list. There's no right yeah. or wrong. That's just sort of my personal I mean, it, take, it, could have been, it could have been so easy to do the whole list, couldn't it, of uh, just short films? Right, there was, and there was a million of them, and there were some great ones on there so that's why i yeah. tried to stay away from it but but it's still an excellent choice and you know obviously i'll never argue with with chaplin being on our list so yeah so what's going what's where you got next so for number eight i have the colonel which is a hungarian film starring bella lugosi and it was directed by michael curtis before he made his trek to hollywood michael curtis of course went on to make many great films most notably though the greatest film of all time Casablanca. I was going to say, yeah, this was going to be on my list purely because Bella Lugosi, but I decided not in the end. But I, I thought you'd be picking that because of uh, because of the director, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, honestly, just the idea of Curtiz directing Bella Lugosi. I don't know a lot about the story. I don't really care. <laughs> I, I'm interested <laughs> in seeing the film just because it's the two of them paired together. Okay, very good. Okay, so my number seven is Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, uh, which was directed by Marshall Nealon. And based upon the novel of the same name by Kate Douglas Wigan. This was adapted by uh, female screenwriter uh, Frances Marion. And the film was made by the Mary Pickford Company. And so guess what? It starred <laughs> Mary Pickford. That's right. Uh, where she's taken into the home of an aunt who's a strict woman. Uh, Rebecca meets a man. 
and they become great friends. Rebecca promises to marry Adam, but her aunt sends her away to boarding school where she graduates and comes back. And Adam says he wants to marry her at the end. It all ends happily ever after. As you said, Mary Pickford, she was in lots of films. This one, I don't know something about it, just uh, I quite like this, the sound of it. And the fact that it was a female screenwriter, it just... Uh, just seemed to stand out from some of the others. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Phil, and I'll tell you how much I agreed with you. Yeah. My pick for number seven is also Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, starring Mary Pickford. <laughs> so there we go. exact yeah, same yeah. film, exact oh. same spot on the list. Don't think I need to say anything more about it. Okay, then my number six is another Mary Pickford film, though. It was uh, The Poor Little Rich Girl, because this one seemed to basically sum up uh, the plot of many of her films, where she starts off in a good place, she ends up meeting some bad people who treat her lousy, and then things change and it all ends, turns good in the end. And again, adapted by Francis Marion from a 1913 play by Eleanor Gates. It's also been described as culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the United States Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. So it's an important film from the, from the era, so it had to be included. There you go. Can't argue with the Library of Congress, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I'm, not, well, I'm sure some people do, but well, there you go. Sure, they probably could, <laughs> but I, I'll choose not to. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, my number six is also a Mary Pickford film, but it is not <gasps> the same one. It's a different one because oh. she was in 4,000 films that year, like I said. <laughs> yeah. So it is The Little American, not to be confused with The Little Princess. It's The Little American, which was directed by Cecil B. DeMille. And so it's actually a wartime drama about a woman and a a, a love of hers who goes missing and ends up working for the Germans and they sort of, sort of still fall in love. I believe there's a love triangle. It's got some some war action, some espionage action. Sounds like quite a good film, actually. And I thought Cecil B. DeMille, who's obviously much more famous for his spectacle and, and you know, musicals and things like that, uh, I kind of thought this would be interesting to see what, what he did in his earlier works with Mary Pickford in the starring role. So there you go. The Little American is my number six. My number five is One Law for Both which was directed by Ivan Abramson. This one, it sounded a bit racy. It's all like uh, spies, traitors, sex. And for the time, it did all... It surprised me, to be honest. I'd say it's a couple of characters. Elga marries a guy called Norman. He finds out that Elga's had sex with a government official in Russia who threatened her brother. Norman throws Elga out of the house. It also features uh, kids born out of wedlock, unequal treatment of the sexes. It just sounds a little bit ahead of its time, to sure. be honest. Yeah, definitely. Although some people did say it was uh, some... Critics have said it's very long and very slow and somewhat tedious in places, but I just, I like the way it also jumps between America and Russia quite a bit. It just sounds a bit more, it sounds like it's got a bit more to it than lots of the films from that time. Right. Which all seems to be, you know, it's all about like the Mary Pickford ones. Yep. Just fun, love doing all this. But this one sounded like, like there was a bit, go, bit more going on with it. Interesting. Interesting. All righty. Well, moving on, my number five is... Uh, moder a Modern Musketeer starring Douglas Fairbanks Sr., which basically is, I guess, very loosely based on The Three Musketeers, I, I, or at least inspired by it. And it's about a man who's inspired by The Musketeers and basically gets himself into all sorts of trouble with various bad guys and tries to sort of be a hero. It's set in modern times, though it's not like a swashbuckling movie, mm -hmm. but it is kind of an adventure movie. And I believe it's got some comedic elements, again, to it as well. This is all from my research. Obviously, I haven't seen the film, uh, but it sounds interesting, and I'm, I'm curious to watch it. So yeah, that's my pick. Very good. Yeah, it did sound good, that one. I was I read about that one as well, but didn't quite make my list. Uh, let's see. Okay, this one, my number four is Great Expectations, directed by Robert G. Vinola and Paul West obviously based on the novel by Charles Dickens. We all know the story, and there's been many, many adaptations of this one, so I just, I'd want to see this one just to see what it was like. 
and it stars Jack Pickford as Pip, and wouldn't you know it, he was the younger brother of Mary Pickford. I was just going to say, there must <laughs> yeah, be some relation. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's great expectations. All righty. Well, my number four is The Butcher Boy, and this is one of the short films that I mentioned. It is a Fatty Arbuckle mm. uh, short film, and it's most notable, however, for being the first film appearance of one Buster Keaton, who was, of course, one of the greatest silent comedians of all time. Fatty Arbuckle, obviously, kind of a famous name still, uh, more notorious than anything else, but Buster Keaton, obviously, one of the all-time film greats, and so since this is his debut film appearance, even though it's a short film... It, it made it pretty high onto my list. Okay, my number three is a film called Fear. Uh, it's a German silent horror film written and directed by Robert uh, Veen and stars Bruno De Carli and Bernard Gotsky. Apologies for not pronouncing it right, but it also stars Conrad Veidt, who also starred in a film called The Man Who Laughs. And you've probably seen his image because it was the inspiration for the uh, the Joker in the Batman comics. Yeah, there's a very famous picture of him yeah. as the the man who laughs, and he, I mean, there's no mistaking that he clearly was a precursor to the Joker. Oh, so totally. If, you, yeah. if he doesn't yeah. ring a bell, definitely just do a quick Google search for it. You'll yeah. see it, and it's a pretty it's a pretty uncanny resemblance. Yeah. So, and if you've been if anybody's been seeing any of the pictures I've been drawing, I've also done one of him because it's such a good image. It is. Uh, but yeah. I, I do like the sound of this one. It was uh, it's a horror film. It just sounds strange and twisted. And I think it'd be a good one to watch. All right. Well, my number three is called Over the Fence, and it is the second short film on my list. And it is a Harold Lloyd short film, and it marks the debut of his glasses or boy character. Now, if you're not familiar with Harold Lloyd, uh, well, A, you should be, and B, let me tell you about him. So Harold Lloyd was one of the biggest silent film comedians of his time. At the time, he was on a par with Charlie Chaplin, and he was pretty much one of the big three for many years between Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and himself. The reason that his fame hasn't really held up as much as Chaplin and Keaton is that apparently after he stopped making films, he became very protective of all the rights to his movies and wouldn't let anybody have them, so the films didn't get distributed for decades. And so a lot of people, he sort of fell out of the public consciousness, whereas Chaplin and Keaton, you've been able to get their movies you know, for a long time, especially in the advent of DVD. And while you can now find a lot more of Harold Lloyd's works, for a long, long, long time, they were not available. But I love Harold Lloyd. I'm a huge fan of his works. I think he was an amazing physical comedian. And this film is basically like the equivalent of the first appearance of Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp character, is, yeah. is what that is. So, so it definitely made my list at a very high position. Oh, yeah, because uh, over here, with, when I was a kid, they used to play lots of Harold Lloyd things around about tea time on, on BBC Two, and it was always, they'd show like three or four of his short films, and that's, uh, so I think there'll be lots of people listening in the UK who uh, have fond memories of him, and sure, I just, sure. I, I, I always preferred him, to be honest, to, uh, to like Chaplin and everything, because he just, it, it seemed a lot funny, a lot more slapstick, and didn't have so much of the sentimentality that sometimes that well that's in pretty much all of Chaplin's films. Right, right. So sometimes if you just wanted to have a good laugh and not, you know, go, Oh yeah, that's a yeah. bit sad as well. <laughs> but you know, right. but uh, I and I really though, I've only really seen the ones where he is wearing the uh, the glasses and the got the straw boater. Yeah, it's pretty much it's, his yeah. his trademark, you know. And yeah. if you if you're not familiar, uh, again, uh, two of the movies that are readily available in nice editions, you can check out are The Freshman and Safety Last, which have both been put out in Criterion Collection editions and are, and are just fantastic Blu-rays or DVDs. So so definitely track one down if you can. Uh, an excellent choice. Uh, okay, so my number two, I think you've already mentioned it, is Straight Shooting, directed by John Ford. Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, as you said, sounds like a good one. It's John Ford. Want to see what it was like? It's for, it reminds me though the story. It reminds me of the one 
There's a Charles Bronson. There's one where he's a farmer, a melon farmer. For some reason, it seems to remind me of that. So yeah, that was the uh, straight shooting. But there's there's one I would like to see, but I don't think any of us will ever get to see it. Called the Tornado, which is uh, his debut film. But it's sadly now considered to be lost. Yeah, well, I mean, I think because you know the 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 film that movies were made on back in that time were basically made of fire, so <laughs> they're they were all really flammable, and yeah. so many films from the the old days were lost to to major studio fires because the silver nitrate that they were made on were is just so flammable that you know basically yeah. you, you'd look at them cross eyed and the whole studio would go up in flames. So that was it. They're basically just there, just waiting to explode when they dis- right. and disintegrate. It's like a the one I wanted on my list was that I mentioned it in the uh, the rundown in 1917, the first feature-length animated film from Argentina, which was called El Apostol, uh, but it was destroyed. The only known copy was destroyed in the studio fire. So, so ma- so many things just lost to the wind. Yep, yep, a lot of like tears in the rain. We'll never see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Mr. Soliloquy. Uh, so my number two uh, is actually a film that was on your list, and it is Fear, starring Conrad Vate. Uh Much like you, a horror film from 1917. They didn't do a lot of horror back then, so this is kind of an anomaly in that respect. Yeah, yeah. And the story, like you mentioned, is actually really cool. So it's about a guy who basically has a curse put on him that he's going to die, and he becomes so paranoid about the curse that it affects his entire life. And basically, he, he kind of ruins his own life because of this curse. It sounds really intense, and I definitely want to track that one down. So. Yeah. And you can imagine you can imagine what they do though with the uh, the silent films that would look as you say intense and twisted. Yeah. I'm sure it's very things. moody and very creepy. So it definitely sounds like something that would be cool to to get a chance to watch. It turns out though it's not been released though for home media, but okay. a print of it is located at the Swedish Film Institute. All right. Well, that means there's hope then that someday they'll put it out on some form of home video and maybe we'll see it. All right, Phil, bring us home. What's your number one film of 1917? Well, my number one film is one you've already mentioned. It's Over the Fence by Harold Lloyd, because as I mentioned before, I absolutely love Harold Lloyd. And as it's the first time he put the glasses on, it's uh, it's had to be on the list. And I just thought it had to be number one. Sure. Yeah, I can't argue with that. It's a great, it's a great pick. Obviously, it was pretty high on my list as well. So, but it was edged out slightly. Honestly, I was going to put it at number two, but that fear movie sounded so intriguing. Yeah, the storyline yeah. behind it was so cool that it actually kind of bumped it out of there. I definitely write it. So, if anybody's listening though from the Swedish Film Institute, if you could, uh, first of all, hey, <laughs> right, hello, there you go. Yeah, that's uh, if you could get that released on some kind of DVD or on YouTube, it'd be, that'd be amazing. Thank you. Yes, and also if anybody's seen any of the movies that we've listed here or if you've seen Fear or any of the other 1917 films, drop us a line and let us know what you think. I'll be curious to see if anybody has any opinions on some of these films because we've never yeah. seen any of them for the most part. That would be fantastic, actually, yeah. All right, so my number one pick is Cleopatra starring Theta Barra. Mm. She, Theta Barra was also a huge movie star back in the silent era, and she was actually considered to be one of the first sex symbols in American film. She had a very, like, goth vamp kind of look and played a lot of, like, horror-type characters, vampires, seductresses. She was kind of, like, hated by a lot of women, from what I understand, because <laughs> she was all, like, a big seductress. But this was uh, a movie about Cleopatra, and apparently her costumes were so revealing that the film was almost banned, or maybe it was banned in some places. And I've seen some pictures from the film, and they are pretty... For a 1917 film, the costumes do not leave a lot to the imagination. Yeah, look at, looking back at some of these, the films and the actresses, I mean, people often now say, oh, it's just, you know, the way what women are wearing now and what they think it's disgusting, you know, so it shouldn't be allowed. But then you do look back and some of the costumes back then, you're going, what? How on earth did they, 
Right. How did that, that get, get yeah. through? Yeah. Well, yeah. that's why the censorship code came into play not a, not yeah, long yeah. after this, you know. So, but uh, yeah, but Theta Barrow was, like I said, a huge star. She's a kind of a curiosity because almost all of her films now have been lost. There's really not much chance. There's only pictures of her for the most part. And this film, Cleopatra, was the most expensive film ever produced at this time. It cost $500,000 to make, which in today's terms is about $9 million. For the first probably 50 years Hollywood existed, there were not many films being made that came even close yeah. to costing that's, $9 million to that's make. That's crazy money really went from back then, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of money for back then. So that's, that's my number one pick because I just think it's such an interesting you know, yeah. Hollywood curiosity. It was a big film at the time, um, but it's completely gone and you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist yeah. anymore. So that's my that's number just, one. It's just crazy. All, all these films that get made now that we never see. Because yep. you never get around to have time to watch them. Yep. But then you go for the more you go back, the more and more films that are lost that will just that that's it, they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a shame, you know. Yeah. But unfortunately, the past is the past. You can't change it, you know. Yeah. But uh there you go. That was nineteen seventeen. It's well worth though for the listeners. It's if you have any kind of interest in film, it's well worth just going online or going to the library and just having a read up on these, you know, silent films because there's so many interesting facts and characters involved and people behind the scenes and so, some of the as we said with fear some of these intriguing films that you just want to know more about it's well worth having a read for sure i agree all right so that's going to wrap up our top 10 list phil do you have the box office for the for the year yeah i've got one it's uh, lots of short films and some of the ones we've mentioned but we've got number 10 a man there was uh number nine was a modern musketeer which oh, you, you mentioned yep. yeah mm-hmm. uh number eight was uh it was a short, uh, fatty arbuckle short called The Rough House. Mm-hmm. Uh, number seven was another short called Teddy at, Th- Teddy at the Throttle, which sounds interesting, starring Gloria Swanson. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, the Butcher Boys, number six, uh, which is another fatty arbuckle short. Yeah, I mentioned that on my list, yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, Butcher Boy. Number five's Coney Island, fatty arbuckle, Buster Keaton, yeah. Four, three, two, and one, all Charlie Chaplin films, The Cure, The Adventurer, Easy Street, and number one, The Immigrant. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so clearly Chaplin was the box office king yeah. in 1917. <laughs> Must be nice to have the top yeah. four films. Yeah, not bad, is it? And each one of them was uh, 24 minutes. Right, or, right. Oh, yeah, 30 minutes or less, yeah. Right. Alrighty, so that is 1917 in a nutshell. We hope you enjoyed a little look back to the earliest days of Hollywood cinema in the silent era. We'll be revisiting this era a few times before we get into the talkies, as they call it, but we're going to spread them out a bit, so you'll, you'll hear back from this era in a, in a few episodes or so. Um, meanwhile, I think that's going to pretty much wrap us up for this episode. You know, Phil, i got to say, can I just mention something I'm proud of myself for, though? Oh, go on there. So this was the first episode. This is, our, I believe, our 14th episode. This is the first time in all of our episodes so far that I didn't go meta in either one of our endings. I did notice that, but I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting, yeah. Right. For, but, for, you know, for me, let's be honest, that's, that's like, you know, that's a yeah. pretty big deal because I'm yeah. the, kind of the, you know, I like to go meta. So that was, I, was, I was looking at them, and I thought to myself, wow, I can't believe neither of these films. I decided to kind of go straight shooting for both of them. So I feel like I've made an important step forward. Oh, definitely. I almost made Cobb a serial killer, but decided not to. <laughs> well, you know, listen, old habits die hard. I'm sure that will pop up again <laughs> in the future. So, Yeah, I think we need more serial killers. We haven't <laughs> for a while. Well, speaking of serial killers, though, why don't you tell people what films we're going to be discussing next week? Because that's certainly going to come into play. That's right, because when you think of serial killers, you think of the 40-year-old virgin. <laughs> That's right. Well, listen, you know, if anybody has justification, it might be a 40-year-old virgin. But, yeah, we are going to revisit that film and, more to the point, 
Yes, Freddy versus Jason. There you go. So that is going to be a, quite the one-two punch, I believe. A little uh, yeah, Steve Carell and a little couple of slashers going at it. So Yeah, that would be a good crossover. Freddy versus Jason versus the versus 4 Versus the four version. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, that is a film waiting to be made as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> oh, and uh, also we will be going to the year 1967. Yes, that was quite an interesting year in Hollywood, actually. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. very excited to talk about that because there's a, a really broad mix of films that yeah, I, lots, I, I lots haven't good films yeah i haven't delved into it deeply but i just from my my knowledge of the year i know there's some really seminal stuff that year so i'm excited to see what we come up with and i'm gonna bet our lists will probably be a little bit different because well let's just say i have some opinions but (laughs) (laughs) i know that's shocking but i know yeah I I look forward to them. I'm sure I will have some opinions as well. I'm I'm sure you will. All right, so Phil, tell people where they can find us online. Okay, you can find us on Twitter at after underscore the ending and also at facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And you can listen to us if you search for after the ending on iTunes. I'm also on soundcloud.com backslash after the ending podcast. And do you want to tell them about the new place they can find us? I will. We are also now on Stitcher Radio, which is a very popular app and website that hosts thousands and thousands of podcasts and radio shows and all kinds of great content. And we are now part of the Stitcher family. So you can find us on there. If you are a Stitcher fan, you have the app on your phone and that's your preferred method to listen to podcasts. We are now Stitcherized or whatever the term may be. So, so. <laughs> feel free to stitch us up. That, there you go. There you go. And how about, and how about you personally, Phil? How can people find you online? People can find me at Liffa films.com and i'm all um all over the social media channels just search for liver films and you will find me at some point very cool and where can i find you mike well, the main place I hang out is at wordsoutloud.com, where you can swing by and follow all sorts of things, including this podcast. You can learn about some of my fiction writing, and you can get a free audiobook and a free digital ebook with a preview of my upcoming full-length novel. So all kinds of cool stuff there for free. Just swing over to wordsoutloud.com. And also, you can like me on Facebook at facebook.com slash official. All righty. So that is going to wrap us up for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, we thank you for listening. And if you can do us a favor, we would appreciate it if you could swing by iTunes or any of the podcatchers that you listen to the show on. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. It really is more help than you know. Right, Phil? That's totally right. And if you give us a five-star review, we'll give you one of these. <laughs> that's right that listen that is a personalized phil edwards inception noise and you can't get those easily i mean unless you listen to this episode where he did it about 27 times but yeah true we'll yeah. give you a personalized one and that's that's yeah. that doesn't come easy so money can't buy them that's right that's right well, five star reviews can five star reviews can exactly <laughs> so all right well thank you for joining us we will be back next week with an all new exciting fun episode for you as always i'm mike spring and i'm phil edwards and we'll see you next week after the ending oh yeah okay sorry i'm sorry just ignore anything i just said so all right um yeah don't even so if I'm ignoring you, you're telling me to ignore it. Does that mean I don't ignore it? <laughs> <laughs> now you're just messing with my head, Phil. <laughs> Inception. Uh, okay, well, it's pretty much similar. The three amigos, they return... Oh, where have we gone? Oh, here it is. Sorry, looking at the bottom of the page. They defeat the Invisible Swordsman's brothers in short order and explain to them that the Invisible Swordsman... Okay. <laughs> I finally got the first part right. Damn your invisible swordsman.
You just, like, you just like giving me extra editing work. Is that it, Phil? I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ariadne, Ariadne. I forget the freaking names in this. Each team member goes to one level of Fisher's subconsciousness. Subconsciousness or subconscious? Subconscious, I think. Okay. Subconscious? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> For the first time since he started going into people's subconsciousness. Subconsciouses. Subconscious night. Subcon- yeah, Sub- exactly. Subsea. Sub- right. Wow. <laughs> 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 yeah, whenever I mess up, we're just going to go to that. Yeah. All right. Excuse me. He's come to <laughs> Dom is a bull. I wrote a bully, a bullient, a bullient, but I don't know how to pronounce that word. I realize <laughs> I've only ever read it, uh, so I'm going to use oh, a different yeah. word. <laughs> Few things he's been uh, in recent years. Yeah, that was terrible. One more time. <laughs> Phil, what? What? Dip, 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 dip. dip. <laughs> <laughs> So, Phil, what year are we talking about tonight? Today? Today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just. Well, my notes make no sense whatsoever. 